Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. Uh, this morning we're going to be, as Tara just read for us, in John chapter 11, so go and keep your Bibles open there, uh, talking through Jesus' dying friend. If, last week I wasn't here. That If, if uh, Brandy gave a report, I don't know if that, she might have said that's how I described myself as I laid in bed. Um, no, I had the flu, and that's the sickest I think I've been in a decade, but... Uh, I don't know, maybe, are you, I don't know if wives feel the same way about their husbands or the way she might feel about me. I think I'm a little dramatic when I, when I go down, and so uh, I miss you guys, though. It's good to be back, and so this was a, an interesting text to be chewing on as I was just laying in, in bed, but uh, no, it's good. And so I think it's a unique sermon for this morning, to be honest. I've, I've never walked through this text as slowly in four parts, but um, in doing so in the way it was divided up, I think there's actually a lot to glean just sitting in this portion. As we walk through it today at the end, what we're going to spend our time doing is answering and seeing three, three reasons that Jesus gives for his delay. So we'll build towards that, but, but Jesus gives these answers why he doesn't go immediately, why he would allow this dying friend, Lazarus, to actually die. Um, but we'll start in verse 1. We'll read the first three verses and, and, and begin to talk about it. Okay, John 11, verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. As I just mentioned, through the next four weeks, we're going to unpack Jesus' intentional interaction with Martha, and then Mary, and then even Lazarus. And as the story progresses, Jesus revealed just, not just who he is, but actually how he loves and in this, he'll show the power he has to bring life out of death. But for this week, we're going to sit in the first part of the story. Uh, before moving to unpacking how the story resolves, I actually think there's a lot that can be gained by remaining in the portion before Jesus' coming words and coming works. Just to sit, if you will, in the weight of waiting here that they would have experienced in this chapter. To consider, uh, as they would have, the experience and the questions that surely followed the news of this sick, dying friend especially the questions that surrounded Jesus' delay. And then to be honest, if we will, with this tension as we try to hold on to the reality of grief and who God is. I mean, some of you, you're there right now, and you're wrestling through holding on to both of those, that you know grief is real, and you've been in that for a while. And yet you hold on to the truth of who God is, but as you're honest and try to reconcile those two things, they, they don't feel compatible. Um, and so there, there's great tension in that and questions, and Jesus is kind, and he gives us an answer in those. Um, and I, th I think it's just important because this is where we are too. This already not yet tension that we live in. Like we know the end of our story just as much as we know the end of chapter 11. It, it's the same ending, right? There's resurrection at the end of it. Yet between then and now will be real times of isolation and question and pain and doubt and sickness and trials, betrayal, suffering, hurt, hardship, and then finally even death. Like what do we do with that then? Like, how do we respond both to this chapter, but when we realize that this chapter is actually a window to a shared reality of each of our own lives, how do we respond to God in face of suffering and even death? So I think to understand, let's lean into what's happening here. I mean, Jesus gets word that Martha and Mary's brother Lazarus is dying. And if you're familiar with the New Testament a little bit, you might recognize the names Mary and Martha from either Luke's account or the foreshadowed story here of Mary that, that Jesus will share a couple, or John will share a couple chapters later. Um, what I think, though, is most interesting, though, is the story that the Gospel of John pivots on is this story right here, right? It moves from the life and ministry of Jesus to the last week before his death. 
And what, it's, what it pivots on, though, is on someone who is said to have an extremely close relationship to Jesus. Yet we have no other recording of him or his relationship with Jesus. Like if you think about that, that, that's somewhat fascinating to think through. Like his character exposes the reality of relationships that existed, yet were unexplored by the Gospels. Like we have no recording of this relationship. And Lazarus, he's not the central part of this story. I was thinking like if we were doing a play, Lazarus, he doesn't make the script, right? He's not a minor character that gets filled. Uh, last week or a couple weeks before, we were talking to someone about this production that First Baptist Church in Harrisburg used to do that I was in called Old Rugged Cross. Uh, and so they would do this each and every year. Um, and I was thinking about that story, like how I shared it and thinking about this story. And I was realizing, I look back on that, I think there's some complexities that were compounded in my life from that time internally. Like my mom back then did makeup for Jesus. And so before each and every production, he'd be on the third floor at First Baptist Church and she'd be putting on the scars of the crucifixion, getting ready for that night. But in the same play, my dad was Judas. And so, like, like, it was just this interesting tension. And they would do that show for two weeks straight. And it was like Groundhog Day. Or if you like the Christian version of the Stanford prison experience, where it's like you have your mom getting Jesus ready for the scene, and your dad each and every week is the one who's going to betray. And it wasn't just two weeks straight for one year, but my mom did makeup each and every year. And each and every year, my dad was cast as Judas again, right? Like, it was a bit of too much of one mantle, for, I think, for a family to hold. There should have been some restrictions set in place, I think. Like, you don't get to be Jesus more than one year because that goes to that family's head. But I don't think one family has to bear the burden of Judas either. Like, every year, grass would begin to grow. Pitchers and catchers, they're reporting. And dad's getting backed into character, right? Like, it's just, like, all kidding aside. Like, it would have been nice if he'd been Lazarus, but they don't, they don't cast for that because he wasn't significant enough for the play. Like, they, they don't have that minor casting. And yet here, in this story, this is what the account of Jesus all pivots on and turns on, this minor character, yet the only thing we know about him is he was significant to Jesus. He was loved by Jesus. That's all we know about him. Jesus loved him deeply. He was loved, and yet he was also dying. And so this is all we know about him, that he was deeply loved by Jesus, had this close relationship with Jesus. What would you expect Jesus to do when he hears about Lazarus? To go, right? He's going to go, right? That's what Jesus does, to heal, to make right, to restore. We've come to expect this of Jesus, and right, rightly so. And yet, as we read this text, we are sometimes correct in our calculation of Jesus' character, but wrong in understanding of how his goodness will be displayed in our lives. Because what does Jesus do? He waits. He stays. He delays. He doesn't go. Like, why would Jesus do this? Why would he stay back? We actually have three answers to that question in the text. Jesus and John provide for us three reasons of why he stays. So let's read verse 4 and we'll end up unpacking the first reason. It says, But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, we just said Lazarus. He's dying. And we know from this story, it's not a secret, we know that he will die. Um, if that's the case, though, how can Jesus say this? Like, how can Jesus say he's not going to die, this illness, or this illness will not end in death? Like, how is that not a problem for us, that Jesus says these words, and yet at the end of this very time today, we know he passes away? How can he say this illness doesn't end in death? Or how does an illness that ends in someone dying not end in death? We're going to circle back to that question, but I think a related question first. Like, 
is Jesus doing in, here in the first century in this, this story what has become culturally normative in our modern times? Is he basically avoiding any real conversation about death? It's interesting. Like what happens to Lazarus here that Jesus says isn't what his sickness is leading to. It's also the very thing we try hardest to escape emotionally, intellectually, even conversationally. I was reading this week that one of the, the most negative and ironic consequences to modern medicine is that now culturally we live in a state of denial of the unavoidable reality of our coming death. And even more ironic, if you think about it, like we avoid going to the doctor, right, when we're sick, out of fear of death, out of fear of our mortality. Like instead, we just think, well, I'll get better, right? Like we find the discussion of death in our culture to be poor taste or even inappropriate. And that's not even a Western civilization thing, like solely. And that's globally. Where we were in Thailand before we came, they wouldn't even use the word that they had in their language for die or for death when referring to people. They used this word sia, which meant broken. And they would do this because they could like speak around it or it softened the reality. Like, like all people, we try to avoid conversations of this. We try to speak around it, soften it, avoid it. Is that what Jesus is doing? No, it's not. For one, because in a few verses, he makes plain. He's saying, no, Lazarus has died. Like This is what's happened here. But we also know he's not doing this because in his word in the Old Testament, in Psalms, we're told to number our days to gain a heart of wisdom. So we're called to engage fully with the reality that is death. And we need to be clear and honest with ourselves and with others that death, it is cruel and it is horrible and is the reality that represents sin's severing tear from God's character and God's good design. But it's also coming. It is coming and is now our great enemy. And it has a claim on every single human being. So we have to deal with it. We have to deal with death. But then we also have to deal with the reality that we can't deal with it, right? There's actually nothing that we on our own can do about it. And this is precisely why Jesus answers the way he does. Because Lazarus does die. But Jesus can and is doing something about it. So again, to answer the question, how can Jesus say this? How does an illness that ends in someone dying not end in death? Well, if the end isn't death, right? The resurrection, if that's the end. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Before Lazarus even dies, as Jesus is given reasons to our natural questions of why he would let him die, Jesus is immediately pointing to the already established, sure outcome at the end of this story. But this doesn't mean he doesn't die. And Jesus doesn't avoid answering the questions of why concerning this death. As we said, he gives three answers, I think, that provide clear reasons for it. And so the first reason was there in verse 4. You see it right in front of you. It says, for God's glory. Why does he allow this to happen in Lazarus' life and Mary's life and Martha's life? He says, well, it's for the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? You think about that, right? Like, like maybe you feel the need to be conditioned just to accept this on the surface as like a Sunday school answer. Like, theologically, that's correct. But to an extent, you don't really engage with it, right? Like, like you don't engage with it thoughtfully because if you begin to really think through that, you have to tackle the weight of the reality of that statement. Like, I don't think that's what we're called to do biblically, just to mindlessly accept it. We're, we're called to wrestle deeply with who God is and what God says. So maybe instead, when you hear this, the, the Lazarus died for God's glory, when you hear this, you do wrestle with it. And you come to the conclusion that there is some flaw in the character of God. Like what you hear is that people are pawns or resources or means to an end to be burned up for God's glory, like kindling to a flame. 
This also misses who God is and who we are to him and what Jesus is saying here. And here's why. In reality, our greatest good and God's glory are the same thing. I said it over Charlie's with Trevor Johnson. We walked through this, and he just shared some pieces of his life and gave this wisdom, and that's what he leaned into this text. He was saying, like, oh, our greatest good and God's glory, those are the same thing. That's one in the same, and he was totally right. Like, to say the end of this was for God to be glorified is also then to say it was for Lazarus and Mary and Martha's greatest good. These are two interchangeable statements speaking to the same reality, one established and rooted in the other. For God's glory and our greatest good, biblically, they are the same. One is found in the other. God is most glorified and we are most satisfied in Him. And we are most satisfied when He is most glorified. There's this, this statement, the Westminster Catechism. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So God's glory, our good, those are one and the same. So when it said that this happens for the glory of God, the equally and always true statement is that it happened for the good of God's children. Lazarus, therefore, died for the glory of God, which also means he died for the good of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Now, is that difficult? Yeah. yeah that, that is weighty. That is difficult. Is that untrue? No. No. In fact, the Bible tells us that the expected pattern of blessing in our life God's primary means of sanctifying grace in our lives, the, the expected pattern, if you will, for which we will receive what is good for us, for therefore God then to be most glorified in our lives, will be in and through the suffering that we will experience. I was reminded as I was thinking about this, 2 Corinthians, I'm just, I'm just going to read it for you. You have your Bibles, you can turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18. Like, keep this in mind, Jesus' answer, and what Paul says here. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore we speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary, get this, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Did you hear what Paul says here? Like in verses 17, right there, what Paul is saying is there is an expected, established account produced in the economy that is your suffering. Like, think about that. Like, for your sake, there is an expected, established account. Just like if you went down the road and opened a bank account, there is something being established and opened on your behalf, and your suffering is the economy that is producing that. It is something being paid into. There is a result coming from that. Like, your suffering then is not only not wasted, nor is it not meaningless and not inactive, but it's actually doing something. 
Paul says it's accruing for you what can only be described as an eternal, incomparable weight of glory. Because there are literal dividends that it will pay that are rooted in the inexhaustible treasury that is our God. So Paul says here, that's good news. And here's the best part. It's not even the best news of what Jesus is saying here. Because as good as that is, it's not even the main point. Because what I love is that section of verses in Corinthians. It actually points to the foundational half of Jesus' first reason here in John. Because he said it's for God's glory, but he doesn't end there. On the back half of that, it says it's for God's glory. So what? So that the Son may be glorified through it. Now, at first, that might sound redundant. Like he's just repeating the same thing twice, right? But he's actually, he's doing more than that. He's specifying God's glory and our good. Because here's the thing, ultimately, when the glory of the Son is referred to in the gospel accounts, what's it ultimately talking about each and every time? What's talking about his crucifixion? That's his glory that's being secured here. So how amazing is this? How is Lazarus' death ultimately for God's glory and therefore his good? Well, because his death brought Jesus' death. That's what John's saying here. And we actually, we see this play out in two ways. There's two ways. There's this horizontal plane that this plays out on. Like his death was for his good because in being raised back to life on a horizontal plane, it actually brought Jesus' death through the relationships that surrounded him in first century Israel, right? This brought on Jesus' death. Like Jesus knew to raise Lazarus from the dead would actually push his enemies towards extreme measures. They've been trying to kill him for quite some time. That's why Jesus and his disciples are laying low here. And that's also why they said, Jesus, be careful in going, because they assume that if he goes, it might mean his death. And so think about it. If they're already this cautious, then to leave, to go do the biggest miracle imaginable, to raise someone from the dead, of course that was a death sentence for Jesus. I mean, this is why Holy Week comes after this. They seek to kill him. The last week of his life follows this miracle. So there's a horizontal plane. But there's also this vertical reality to what Jesus is saying here, what John tells us. Like the only way that Jesus can call sinful people, dead people, back to life is if he goes in their place into their tomb, right? He has to go into the tomb. To call someone out, he's got to go in. This death then was for his good because in it, it demonstrated the ultimate exchange that Jesus really makes for all who will follow him. Like where our death becomes life because the author of life took our death. Jesus knew that the only way he could get Lazarus out of the tomb was if he put himself into it. And if he is to guarantee resurrection for all who believe in him, he must put himself into the grave. But yet because he beat death through death by coming back to life, we now share in his victory. And so this unfolding story of Lazarus in chapter 11 is a real-life portrayal of our coming reality. That's what's happening here. That's why. So he said this is for your good because you're going to see what ultimately I'm going to do in each and every life of the person that believes in me. So Jesus allowed Lazarus to go to the tomb so he could show his hope and our hope of one day of walking right out of it. That's the first reason. For God's glory, which means for our good. We see the second reason in verses 5 and 6. John says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, so what is the second reason that we get for Jesus' delay? Well, it's that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That seems even more wild if you think about it, right? It's getting a little crazier in the text. Like, why did Jesus let him die? Precisely the reason his siblings hoped he would remain alive. Because Jesus loved him. 
And I think, though, as we consider this, we have the ability to understand why someone would do something that upsets or frustrates or even hurts, but is ultimately loving towards that person. We do have a category for this type of love. And if you're like, what is it? Like, we'll just come after service to one of our families with toddlers and you can experience it, right? Like, 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 no, you can't jump off the kitchen island. No, you can't play with scissors. No, you can't jump off the kitchen island with scissors. No, you can't have a 12th donut in the lobby. No, you can't drink paint, right? Yes, you have to buckle up for the car right here. You have to wear pants before you buckle up for the car ride here. Like any of those things that seem ridiculous, unloving, that cause tantrums beyond you can imagine, right? There's a category for their good that seems and doesn't feel like they're good. We would say those are loving things. But to allow someone to die, man, that that seems way more extreme. I mean, maybe, right? Like maybe in our lives you've experienced this because someone's suffering and you love them deeply that that because of your faith in Jesus, it is the most loving thing to allow. But not if you have the power to heal, right? And like, 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 none of you can eliminate all sickness and suffering. I mean, Jesus isn't limited in power here. So what do we do with this then? Well, first we trust, right? Jesus says he's doing it because he loves. And so a good starting point when we don't understand is to realize that our understanding of the situation is really on the plane with the toddler and the scissors and the paint when compared to the infinite wisdom of the love of our God. It's a starting point, right? We, we trust. But I also think we can consider and conclude implicitly truths concerning God's goodness from a somewhat shocking, explicit explanation, right? He says, I'm doing this because I love. Like, as we just examine that statement, it's difficult. But I think within that, we can conclude some truths of God's goodness, and I think here's the big one. God loves us enough to allow us to hurt so that we will also begin or continue to heal. That's what we see here. And think about it. Here's why. Our problem is that while we are fully dependent people on God, our bend is to live independent from him. And if that's the case, what's the most loving thing that our God can do for us? Like, is it not to position us to a place where we need to depend on him? Or think about this, in your life, just, just consider moments in your life. When were the times that you experienced the closest relationship with God? Are they not through the child, trials that were most severe? Like as you look back, wasn't, wasn't it in the moments of suffering, in those moments that created dependence that you look back and realize those are the points in my life where I felt the closest relationship to who God is? C.S. Lewis, he says this, puts it famously, uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. God loves enough to position us exactly how we need to be so that we will remain in him. But I was also reading this week that what's so wonderful is is that even as he does this, right, he is so good that even as he allows evil or, or its effects in our life, God will only allow it to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what that evil intends. Like, think about that. In this story, he allows sickness, right? He even allows death. But he only allows sickness for a more further healing. He only allows death for a resurrection. All that happens to us is because he loves us. That's what he says. Let's read verses 7 through the end of our time, verse 16. And we'll find the third reason for why Jesus allows this to happen. Starting in verse 7, John says, And after this... After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are now just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant, but they thought that he meant taking rest and, rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay. In this dialogue, again, we see the disciples' fear and the real danger that's going on in this situation, right? And Jesus says, hey, there's 12 hours in the day. So while it's still light, it's safe. Now, um, in ancient times, of course, they didn't have clocks. So here's what Jesus is referring to. They would divide their days up into 12 equal parts. But those parts would be either longer or shorter depending on the season, how much daylight there was. And so he's saying, hey, while I'm still with you, while this ministry of life is still with you, we'll go. But pretty soon, it's going to, going to switch. He's about to die, right? So it's running out. And Thomas, he doesn't understand all of this, but there's this amazing precision in his words. For these men would one day go and die for him because he died for them. And so he doesn't even understand how accurate he's really being in this description. But it's really in this for our time, what's most notable is that Jesus gives a third reason for Lazarus' death. He says Lazarus, he died for them, right? Why did Lazarus die? Well, so the disciples may believe. That's interesting, right, as we think about this. And I think it's because when we often understand personal suffering, we do so through the prism of self, right? As we try to make sense of personal suffering in our lives, we usually evaluate that inwardly. I try to make it sense, how does this make sense for something in my life through the prism of self? Yet when we do that, I think we misunderstand suffering. Or at the very least, we have an incomplete understanding of suffering. Because biblically, our suffering is not merely or solely a means of mercy or grace for us. And in fact, it actually might be God's primary way of working in someone else's life. God uses your suffering for someone else. It's along these lines of thinking that I was reminded someone said, like the harder the suffering in your life, the may it may be for someone else. That was a good word, right? The harder the suffering that you walk through in your life, it may be for someone else. So this is the first reason we have here. Jesus says it's for others, so they may believe. Like, like think about this. Christians don't immediately go to heaven when they believe so that others will become Christians through their life and their testimony. Like, we are here so that others will see the light of the gospel. We've talked about that weeks on end. But this guy named Victor Frankl, says regarding this, he says, what is to give light must be willing to endure burning, right? We endure suffering, knowing full well that Jesus could return today and make everything right. But if Jesus comes and does, does that, that's it, right? It's over. Like, he will come and he's going to judge the living and the dead. But when he comes back, it's final. Judgment is complete. No one else will believe. It's it. And we are in these last days, however long they may be before the end of time. That's coming. But it's in these days that many can and will st still come to believe. So it's worth our suffering. If it means others will come to know Christ who suffered for them. I, I heard last week that over 16,000 people alone on the continent of Africa are coming to faith each and every day. I don't know how they count that. I don't know exactly if it's true. I'm not promising. 
But it was a pretty astonishing number, right? To think about 16,000 coming to faith each and every day. And it made me think of this story. Mary and Martha have to be asking, right, in this story, where is he? Is he coming? Does anyone see him? Go, go look a little farther. And even the story next week, they're going to say, Jesus, if you had just been here, if you had just come, you could have done something about this, right? But Jesus delayed. Why? So disciples would believe. The same disciples who would one day serve as the pillars of the church, not through the success or the gain or, or, or the, the fruit of their ministry, but rather because of the testimony of their suffering. It's the same today. Every day that Jesus delays means in the life of God's children and the life of Christians that there are more cancer diagnosis. There's more heartache. There's more depression. There's more isolation. There's death of friends, death of parents, death of spouses, death of siblings. Each day, suffering grows. But so too do the number who are coming home, right? Like again in Africa alone, 600 an hour, over 10 a minute, once every five seconds, a new person trusts in Jesus. That's worth our suffering to endure a little longer. But even more, it's worth it when we realize God will actually use our suffering so that others will see and believe. Well, you understand this. We don't just endure so that God will do this separate, unrelated work apart from our suffering. But rather, God will use our grief. He'll use our mourning. He'll use our sadness and our suffering to not only draw us closer to him, but to draw others to him as well. But please hear this. God will use the suffering that you are in right now. And it may very well be the primary participation with him in his outflowing work of redemption. And because of his goodness, as it tears you apart on the inside, he will continue to restore you in ways that you are not without it. So that's the first. God will use, use your suffering so others may believe, just like the disciples. But I think there's something related to that, right? Second way our suffering is used for others to believe. As we experience suffering in this world, it is not only for your eternal reward, which it is, we just read, or so that others will come to know Christ, their reward, but it also may be so that you are in a better position right now to intercede and care for someone else in suffering. Like the reason you might be suffering is so that you can intercede for them before the Father. Go to Jesus to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf. Like what is the way that we begin to understand or to reconcile suffering and grief in our life, which is in and of itself opposite of good, God's good design? What is the way we begin to understand this is with a greater profound reality, that we experience our suffering and grief because they are the most clear path to participate in genuine intercessory prayer with God for others. Do we ever consider our suffering like that? That this is an opportunity to participate in prayer for someone else who is hurting? Like what if we not only see our suffering and grief this way, but we actually lived in light of it? Like how would our lives be changed if we understood we had this opportunity to lean into the pain of others because of the pain that is present in our own heart? That it uniquely allows us to feel for the brokenness of others. Like if you're hurting deeply, I would encourage you this week, go buy a yellow legal pad and just write prayers out for the care of others. Begin to look around and think, who do I know that's hurting? And begin to pray because God has uniquely positioned you in your brokenness. Your brokenness uniquely qualifies you to be broken for others, right? He's put you in a place, positioned you so that you can care, so that you can pray. God allows us to be broken down so that we can have a heart like his to be broken for others. So that's what we see here. Three reasons God's gift, right? For his glory and our good, because he loves us, 
because he loves us enough to, to know what it's like to love others, right? To even live beyond ourselves in our pain now. And as we close our time today, there's a lot of stories in the room. And I think some of you, this really resonates right now. Like, like you're here in this story. Maybe not even a lot of people in the room know that you're here. Like, you've just gotten news. And maybe it's your news or your family's news or your friend's news. But as you plot yourself in the course of your own story, it lines up exactly in John 11. Like, you find yourself positioned there, right? You find yourself there. Or maybe you aren't there now. Like, if that's not where you're at yet, I want to invite you. We're going to respond our time together. I want to invite you to prepare your heart in confession of your realization of the need of Jesus, even before you're part of the story that's like this, before it unfolds, right? Not to live in fear. We're not called to live in fear of what comes, but rather to prepare ahead of time to live in hope, realizing, confessing when you're here, when you do step into a season of grief or loss, that it'll be only through the Holy Spirit that you'll find strength that are only being found and held and remaining in Jesus. And because he is good, you confessed your trust in him even in the days ahead before this news comes. But if you're in this season now, if this is where you're at, I want to invite you that, um, I want to invite you that this is a role for you to respond to, with God right now, like this morning here. That this can be a time to respond and receive prayer. Maybe you just need someone to pray for you. Maybe you just need to tell someone this is where you're at so you can be prayed for. There's people here who would love to intercede and go before and pray for you. Um, maybe you just need to sit and be honest and, and talk with God. Maybe you need to sing. As Chad, a few weeks ago, he, he preached on this, just to sing and confess to God truths of his promises. Maybe you just need to be sung over the promises of God, declared around you and over you. But as you do, like, respond as you need to. Um, but as you do, just remember that Jesus will not waste any of your suffering. We can trust that he's already done something about it. That's why he says these words here. And he's coming back to make things right once and for all. So in light of that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you you're not silent to grief, that you don't avoid it. God, that you even allowed those who you love deeply to experience it for our sake. God, I, I'm not you, and so I don't know the motives fully of your own heart, but it seems that you allowed a very close friend to walk through this so that when you're gone from here, God, when you're, you're not likely to walk through the door in the next week, God, and if you do, it changes everything this time. Um, God, we have a story that we can look on with trust and with hope. So God, if there are people hurting here in this room, God, if, it, if this week has been filled with visits to doctors, God, if it's been filled with phone calls of a friend in mourning, God, if it's been filled just in a quiet room, um, still room that begins to become more and more filled with tears and sadness, that we will lean into your promises that you have here. God, that you are not silent. God, even when it feels like that you delay or that you're distant, God, that you are working and that you are good and we can trust in you. God, I pray that we don't leave this room trying to strengthen ourselves to find the resolve from within, but rather we look into the reality of your resurrection and realize that it is final. God, there is completeness coming that we can trust in it. And that is a work that you will do. God, and we'll just choose, choose to remain each and every day until you make that a reality. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.